So, what, yeah, I wanted to start with just any general questions about last night, but in particular, uh, the emphasis on praying the Bible or meditating on Scripture. Um, when I, uh, I tell you an interesting story. Um, a few years ago, I was looking at my college transcript, and there were entire courses I didn't remember taking. Like this, I took a class in that. <laughs> I didn't remember a professor, I didn't remember a textbook, I couldn't remember a single lecture, or I, I couldn't remember anything about some of these classes. And I laughed at that and said, boy, I must have had some great profs, you know, for those classes. And then it suddenly hit me, wait a minute, I'm a professor. <laughs> I teach classes. And, and the thought of students sitting in my, especially personal spiritual disciplines class, which is a required, the required spirituality class we have there at Southern, and going through my book on the spiritual disciplines for the Christian life and looking at their transcript years from now and saying, I took a class on personal spiritual disciplines. Who taught that? Just made my blood run cold. Think about that. So I tell them that every discipline we talk about in that class is something worthy of their practicing the rest of their lives. But there are three things that I call on them to do every single day for the rest of their life. As a result of that class, and we review those just about every day. Number one, to meditate on Scripture. So surely you intend to get into the Word of God every day the rest of your life, right? Yeah. Well, you don't want to just use a method that you're going to use and forget every day, right? Which is mere reading of Scripture, not meditating. So meditate on Scripture every day the rest of your life. Second, I want you to pray the Bible every day the rest of your life. You, you intend to pray every day, right? Or you say, you know, in the rest of my life, I'm going to schedule some days off from talking to Jesus. Uh, so if you're going to pray, why say the same old things about the same old things? So pray the Bible. And the third thing is family worship, uh, which is one of the little books out there, one of the things I often speak on. I, you know, I've been averaging 100 airplanes a year for 22 years now. And I'm convinced in most of our best churches, most of the best men in our best churches, no one even pray with their wives or children if they have a much less 10 minutes of something like family worship. And I tell them, if you'll do those three things every day of the rest of your life, if you'll meditate on Scripture, pray the Bible, have family worship, you won't blow up your marriage. You won't blow up your ministry. There's no guarantee that a spouse wouldn't walk away. There's no guarantee a church wouldn't fire you, but you're not likely to be the cause. And you will be that very small minority that reaches my age still in the ministry. Uh, or the statistics are, now this, I trust this would be much higher at Southern Seminary, but all schools combined, about for every, uh, about for every 20 who enter a seminary, about two are still in the ministry when they get to be my age. There's just a variety of reasons why they don't make it. And... Um, so you do those three things every day. You meditate on Scripture, pray the Bible, and have family worship. You'll make it. This is how you keep the elephants off your air hose. So I wanted to give you an opportunity if you wanted to have any questions about those things in particular, because I said to the pastors this morning, you know, if, if, when I, after I'm gone, if a number of people are just doing some of those things, praying the Bible every day, meditating on Scripture, it's been a successful conference. If those are lifelong changes in, in the lives of some of the people, then it's been successful, not just a moment of, of motivation, edification, but some real lasting change. That's what we're after. So with that in mind, questions? We had a question from okay. back here. Great. Paul? Good morning, Dr. Whitney. Good morning. 
from your uh, experience in praying through the Bible, which is the one psalm that has given you the most heartache, the most challenge? The most challenge? That would be, um, is it 87 or 89? Which one is that? Um, let's see. Um, it's the one that just is considered, um, yeah, Psalm 88, which sometimes is, is said, you know, the darkest of the Psalms. There's no real praise, there's no real word of hope, um, I mean, it ends with, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, my companions have become darkness. End of psalm. Um, the best thing, it begins, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. And in the fact, he is my Lord. He is the God of my salvation. There's the hope. But the rest of it is very real in terms of I cry out to you day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. My soul is full of troubles. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. And the whole psalm is like that. Well, you know why God preserved that in the Bible? Because we often feel that way. With 150 psalms, you have the entire range of human emotions there. From exhilaration to Psalm 88 and everything in between. So we have not only a miracle of inspiration in the psalms, but the miracle of preservation. That God has preserved 150 psalms like this. Because it, it, the whole range of the human experience is to be found there. Now, when I teach in, in length on praying the Bible, I teach something called the Psalms of the Day. And uh, those of you who got the little book on praying the Bible last night, there's the first appendix in the back explains this, and, um, uh, which basically says uh, to quickly scan five psalms every day and then pick one to pray through. If you read five different psalms every day for a whole month, by the end of the month, you would finish the book of Psalms, because there's 150 Psalms, 30 days in the month, divides out five times. If you read five different Psalms every day or a whole month, you'd read the whole book of Psalms. And what I advocate is quickly scanning five Psalms and picking one to pray through. And the simplest way to do that, I think, is, is what's sometimes called the Psalms of the day. So today is the sixth, right? So... The sixth psalm is your first one, the day of the month. So the sixth psalm is the first one you look at. Then to get the rest of them, you just add 30. Why 30? 30 days in the month. So 6 and 36, add 30. 66, add 30. 96, add 30. 126. So those five psalms are the ones I would quickly scan and just pray the one that stands out. So on the 6th of June, they're going to be... 6, 36, 66, 96, 126. Day of the month plus 30. And if you'll quickly scan five, it's uncanny how one of those will stand out as giving voice to where you are right now. And you may look at Psalm 88 and say, I, you know, that, I don't need to go there. <laughs> not today. That's not where I need to be today. And that would come up what, on the 18th, 18, 48, 78, no, no, it's going to come up 
28th, right? Yeah, 28th. 28th of the month, it'd be 28, 58, 88. You know, you might skip Psalm 88 for months and months. But over the years, you're going to systematically be exposed to all 150 Psalms. And so on the 28th of the month, you look at 28, 58, 88, uh, 118, and 148, and you just pick the one that stands out. And you might use Psalm 28, four months in a row. But over time, you're going to be systematically exposed to all 150 Psalms. They're all equally inspired. They're all equally easy to pray through. They're all equally inspired. They're not all equally easy to pray through because you've got the imprecatory Psalms and things like Psalm 88. But the greatest benefit, it gives you a place to go. Because with especially the very little I gave to you last night, you may say, okay, I'm going to pray a psalm, pray a psalm, let's see. All right, here we go. Well, I don't like that one. <laughs> psalm 88, my goodness. All right, all right, here we go. No, use that one the other day. All right, well, you're already going downhill, right? We need all the help we can get. If you know the Psalms of the day, it gives you a place to go. So you come to your Bible, you know, it's like, oh, man, I, oh, oh, I'm so sleepy today. I'm trying to learn to pray a psalm like I did the other day at the conference. So. <laughs> you know, we don't need, you know, that's real life. That's how we often come to the Bible, right? But if you're that sleepy, you can say, okay, so what's today? The hardest part of this, what day is it? You know, all right. So, and that gives you a place to go. But you quickly scan five. You take 30 seconds to send, scan five psalms like that. It's in, uncanny how one of them will, will jump off the page. You say, yeah, that's the one I want to pray through today. Psalm 88, rarely. But there are times. All right, someone else. That's a great, uh, a great method. Uh, I received an email this week from a pastor. The uh -huh. subtitle was Good News, Bad News. Yeah. And he said, good news, I prayed for you and your flock today. Bad news, it was an imprecatory song. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give him your method. And, and let me, by the way, let me mention that. One. Because if you're trying to pray through a psalm, and it's one of those psalms, oh, Lord, dash your children's heads against a rock, you know, smash their, <laughs> their teeth in their mouth. And, you know, there may be somebody at work you kind of like to pray that for, but it's hard to do with a pure motive. I, I think ultimately we put all the psalms in the mouth of Jesus. Uh, for someday he's going to do far worse than that to his lifelong unrepentant enemies, right? But you, in real life, you may come to that and say, I don't know what to do with that. Well, s skip that whole section. Now, I often put the enemies of my soul in there, that God will do that with the sins that come out of the sin factory in my chest. I pray he will do that with our national sins. I pray he will do that with abortion in our country or racism in our country. But let's say in real life, you come to one of those and you say, I, I don't know what to do with that. I forget what he said at the conference. Fine, skip the whole section. There's nothing that says you have to pray over every verse. There's nothing that says you have to finish the psalm. Just go through it, and whatever strikes you, turn it Godward, and then go on to the next thing that does. Dr. Whitney, thank you so much for your ministry. And as a father of four uh -huh. uh, who has a great desire for family worship, Good. Yet whose consistency may ebb and flow yep. at times, uh, and to my frustration... Yeah. Uh, what would be your your most practical tip to uh -huh. fathers around yeah. uh, family worship? And yeah. Well, that again, I'm I'm not here to sell books because, as far as I'm concerned, they're they're if they're out there, they're you know they're 
<laughs> they're sold as far as I'm concerned. They didn't relate to me anymore. I didn't bring those. The church had those here. Uh, Brian brought those for you. Uh, arranged to have them here to make of them available. But that's that's little book is 80 pages. Uh, it's very brief. And uh, some of you say, well, I'm kind of interested, but I'm not a reader. Well, you can get it on audio. Um, through Amazon, you get Audible, right? And I'm, I'm the one who reads it. So I know a lot of guys would rather listen than read. But the last half is just how do you do this thing? It's very simple. Read, pray, sing. No preparation. I've never prepared. Some guys have the idea that family worship means I have to get together some sort of devotional. And I don't know how to do that. Or I don't have the time to do that. I've never prepared. Just pick up the Bible where, where you left off last night. Read and then pray. And then I, I think I'm going to argue from Scripture. Sing. I get the most pushback on that. But at the very least, read the Bible and pray. And, you know, the simple thing about prayer, as I mentioned last night, I, I, I can say everything pretty much I said last night about praying the Bible in one sentence. In family worship, pray about at least one thing you read in the Bible. So with the children there, and sometimes we think family worship is just for couples with children at home. A couple of places, 1 Peter 3, 7, it says husbands. It doesn't say fathers, it says husbands. There are husbands that aren't fathers, and there are empty nesters who have no children at home. So this is for all couples, whether they have children at home or not. But um, pray about at least one thing you read in the Bible. So with your children. You read John chapter 3 tonight. Afterwards, say, okay, who's someone we know who needs to be born again like Nicodemus was? The next night, John chapter 4, who's a woman we know who, like this woman at the well, needs to meet Jesus? And that accomplishes two things. It trains the children to get their prayers from the Bible. Because otherwise, just like you, they'll say the same old things about the same old things, right? Right? You know, thank you for this day. <laughs> thank you. For the Fujiwaita. I've actually heard that. Because they're looking for something to say, you know, just like you. So if you train them, you get your prayers from the Bible. So we just read this in the Bible, and then you have to, you know, prompt them a little bit. Who's someone we know, like this man, Nicodemus, we can pray for. Uh, pray about at least one thing you, you read in the Bible. And so it'll train them to get their prayers from the Bible. And second, it it adds variety to the prayers. It's not the same prayer every night. So that's about as simple as I can make. Oh, the other practical thing would be uh, you may never have an occasion that you think is really evidently blessed by God. When I finish teaching on family worship, I show a, a picture. It's my favorite picture of my daughter and I. Uh, at her graduation from a, a, a class called Christian school, their tradition is the parents give the diploma to their child who's graduating. Say a few words of encouragement. The child has some prepared remarks of thanks to the parents and so forth. <clears throat> and when we spoke to our daughter, gave her her diploma, she said some things, gratitude to my wife, and then she began to speak to me. And when she started talking about family worship, she said about a sentence or two, and then she fell on my shoulder and cried harder, literally, than I'd ever seen her since she was a preschooler. And someone took a picture of that, and I, I show that at the end. Um, and then I say, lest anyone have the wrong impression, that if you do family worship by the book, sometimes we, we're given the impression that if you do it right, your children will sit there with folded hands, 
perfectly still, cherubic faces, you know, reverent before, before the Lord throughout the whole time. No, three-year-olds are going to do what three-year-olds do in the family room. They'll be rolling around on the floor. Um, you know, the dog will, will come in with a dead animal in its mouth, you know. <laughs> that actually happened to someone I know recently. Um, and the wife said, well, this is real life, isn't it? Yeah, real life happens in real families in the family room while you're having family worship. And I'll point people that picture and I'll say, you know what? In the thousands of nights that led up to that picture, not one time, not one time would we have walked away from that and I would have said, oh, the Spirit of God came down upon our house tonight. You know, <laughs> we were on our faces before God. Most every night I walked away thinking, did that do any good whatsoever? And in fact, you know what it's like to, to this day? I mean, my daughter, God willing, will be Tuesday night at our house with our grandbaby, and then the weekend her, son, her husband will come. To this day, when we have family worship in our home, you know what it's like? Hey, would you put your phone down? I'm trying to read the Bible here, you know? Hey, listen up, will you guys? That's what it's like to this day, and yet you do that every day for years and years, and you may get, you know, a picture like that. If you do, it's worth it. We're growing oaks of righteousness, the Bible says. And you don't grow an oak by an occasional remarkable exposure to the elements. No, it's the routine, unobservable growth that happens in the steady, unremarkable exposure to the elements. The soil, the water, the sun. And that's how family worship works. It's almost never spectacular. It's almost never memorable for the right reasons. And yet, the Word does its work. So, it's simple and persevere, regardless of appearances. Okay, I'll go over here first, and then we'll go okay. back here. <clears throat> Good morning. Mm -hmm. um, how would you do family worship with the, uh, young, uh, the uh, young adults, with their parents that don't, you know, thirst for righteousness and all that? So you have young adults who are children no, like in homes. How would I? How would I? Um, You're saying, for, like, for yourself as a young adult with your parents who aren't really leading in that regard and don't really have a desire to do so. Okay. What do you do if you're in that kind of So position? someone your age? Okay, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, there comes an age even with, with uh, older teenagers that, uh, you, you know, you don't try to force them. Um, I mean, you try to make, uh, you know, a, 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 a gentle appeal. And you want to make it positive. You don't want to make it, a, you know, a guilt-inducing kind of thing. That, but, uh, you know, that this is what we're going to do. We'd love to have you with us. We want you to be with us. We pray for you. Will you join us? If they don't, then, you know, you can't force them to do that. But you want them to see it as appealing, as winsome, but not a grim uh, habit. You know, merely, merely that. Nothing that's condemning them, but something that is an evident blessing to you. That you're trying to share with them. What, what if it's the other way around and it's the young person who wants it and not really the parents? It, 
by a young person, how young? An older teenager, young teen. Okay. Still in the home. Yeah. Well, if it's, if it's like a, a teenager, I mean, uh, in, in the book, I have a story near the end. It's one of the best stories in there about a young man who appealed to his father to have family worship every day and not just on Sunday. And the result was he, as a 17-year-old, began leading his parents and the rest of the family in, in family worship. And so he, he needs to be willing to do that, step up and say, well, well I'll do it if, you know, if, you'll, if you'll show up. Um, but if, if, if someone else is the head of the household, you, you, know, you can't force them to do this. You can ask. Um, <clears throat> it, it's, I mean, it's hard to imagine a loving father rejecting an appeal from a teenager, would you read the Bible with us? I mean, I can envision, and I, I know situations where it definitely would happen, but if anyone has any inclination toward their children at all, you know, to, to, would you read the Bible with us? I mean, normally the difficulties are the way around, right? So, but ultimately, if you're in, 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 in a home where someone else is the head of the household, uh, you cannot force them to do that, of course. Got another question here. Good morning, Doc. Morning. Uh, last night you spent a lot of time talking about the importance of meditating on the Word. Uh huh. And that was just gold because I've been meditating on that, how it's so important to meditate on the Word, not just read it. Yes. But I know in your book you talk about there's like 17 strategies on how mm -hmm. to meditate. I was wondering if you could just share maybe three key strategies <coughs> on how we can meditate on the Word. Mm hmm. I'm not just asking this question because I want to save $20 in your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, if, if you go to my website, biblicalspirituality.org, biblicalspirituality.org, and there's a drop-down menu called Speaking. And one of the items there is Conference Handouts. And if you go to the, the, the first one of those... Uh, there's a two-page Word document, no, one page, there's, there's like seven different handouts, one of them is Methods of Meditation Summary. Methods of Meditation Summary, I don't know what would happen if you Google just that, if you'd take you right to the page, but it, it, it's a summary of all 17 methods, and that's free, so be happy for you to have that. Um, well, praying the Bible would be the first one. When I, I do a conference on the spiritual disciplines like that, on Friday night we'll spend two hours about praying the Bible. I'll actually give people seven minutes to try it. Then we come back and talk about it. Saturday morning, we begin to I teach on meditation. The second half is on the methods. It's, it's, it's pretty much near the end. It's like 11.15 or so on Saturday morning. We'll talk about praying the Bible as a method of meditation. And I'll say, you know, what we did last night, you know what I mean by that now. That, that's also a method of meditation. And then I'll ask people, how many of you can remember at least a phrase that you prayed through last night? Everyone raises their hands. The same people, just like some of you last night, who, who said at the beginning, I don't remember what I read in the Bible. Here are people raising their hands about something that they remember from 14 hours earlier, the tiredest time of the week, late on Friday night, and they spent seven minutes doing this. And yet, and they didn't know they were going to be tested on it. And the next day, they still, they still got it. So, 
uh, that would be the first one, praying the Bible. And then I would say, in general, a method whereby you ask prepared questions. I have <clears throat> uh, two lists of questions on that handout. Um, if I said to you, okay, uh, take out a sheet of paper there, and before anybody can leave, I want you to write a one-page essay about the chair you are sitting in. Go. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. That sounds like a professor. Give you some irrelevant assignment, you know, like that. But what if I said to you, okay, I want you to write a one-page essay. You can't leave till you've written it about the chair you're sitting in. But I want you to tell me, uh, is, it, um, is it comfortable? Why, why not? How can it be improved? It costs this much money. Do you think that's a good bargain or not? Uh, do you have any special memories associated with that chair? Uh, and you're laughing, but you could write, I learned how to pray the Bible sitting in this chair. Well, now you've got a story to tell. That second essay is a lot easier than the first one, right? What's the difference? In the second one, you're just answering questions. In the first one, you're trying to dream up information just off the top of your head. So to come to your devotional time and to meditate on Scripture, and you're just kind of staring at the verse, what am I supposed to do? If you have some prepared questions to answer, that's, that's a good kickstarter. So some list of prepared questions with a text um, is, a, is a good method. And then, um, let's see, if I only have three or four, um, I would say ask how it points to something about Jesus. Uh, we're to look at the Bible Christocentrically, right? Jesus taught us that on the road to Emmaus. So how is Jesus the fulfillment of something here? How is he the great example of something here? How, is he the, um, uh, how does he redeem the situation that's brought about here? I mean, you, you know, how does this point to something about Jesus? And that's always a good method to help us keep a Christocentric view of Scripture. And let's see, if I were going to bring in uh, one more. Um, well, look for applications of the text. We're to be doers of the Word, right? So uh, before you close your Bible, what's one thing I should do in response to this text? Something to pray about, something to believe, something to say to someone, something to start, something to stop. I'm to be a doer of the Word. How am I to be a doer of this Word? And then one more, um, think of an illustration of the text. What pictures it? Uh, to look at the text and say, um, this, is like, this is like maybe something in the news, a story in your life, something in nature. When I said last night, meditation was like a bellows. On the fire of the Word of God, that's from Puritan Thomas Watson. They were great with a lot of these natural illustrations. So you have a biblical truth, okay? What, what illustrates that? What, what is some story that pictures what's mentioned here? I mean, that's what preachers do, right? As they're explaining the Bible, they will give an illustration of that. 
The more you can do that, the better communicator you will be to your children, to your spouse, to your boss, to your customers, or whomever. Uh, because we, we live in a, in a visual age where we all carry screens around with us. Most of our waking hours are spent looking at the world through glass, the glass of the windshield, the glass of the television screen, the glass of the computer monitor, or the glass of our phone. And increasingly, it's a video-driven age, right? We can look at YouTube videos or GIFs on our phones. We look at the TV. And one of the downsides of that is it is robbing us of the ability to create mental pictures. When you read a book, you have to create the picture. Now, that's not to say, woe is us, let's go back to the good old days. The Bible says don't do that. In Ecclesiastes, it says, do not say, why were the former days better than these? God made us alive now, in this culture, in this video-driven age and culture. We're to be godly, Christ-centered, biblical Christians in this culture. But realize that one of, well, we have the benefits of this culture. I was able to do FaceTime with my wife last night, you know, live uh, camera there talking to her. That, that's much better than texting, all right? The down, there is a downside to that. And the downside is it robs us of the ability to create pictures. If I say to you, I want you to imagine a castle. And the castle is in a deep valley, surrounded by a moat with peaks on either side. Well, now, you're having to create that picture. If I just show you a picture of that, you just passively receive it, right? And there's a sense of mental work when you have to create a picture. If I'm saying, you know, imagine a, a, a castle with a moat around it. And so you're, you may sense a bit of knitting your brow a bit. You know, you're, you're trying to imagine this. And what's happening are things in your brain happening. Neurons are coming together and so forth. That, that's, there's a, there is mental work going on. That's harder to do than just passively receive pictures. And so how can we bring that around? How can we change that? Meditation on Scripture. To discipline yourself to say, what picture is this? What's an illustration of this? You know who sermons sell more today than anyone's? I'll give you a hint. He died in 1892. Yeah, Spurgeon. Spoke in Victorian English. Didn't tell many stories. But he just spoke in pictures. He was so visual in his communication. He read, I mentioned last night, Pilgrim's Progress. He read it a hundred times, at least once every year of his adult life. We would say, boy, Bunyan just filled that book with the Bible. Spurgeon said, you prick Bunyan anywhere and his blood is Bibline. I mean, he made up a word, but it works. And it's like every sentence is like that. He just spoke in pictures. And to this day, it, it is so communicative. It, 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 it brings people in so that they will buy his sermons more than anyone else's. And despite some of the archaic things about it, it still communicates so powerfully. How do we develop that? How do we cultivate that and not just be mindless picture watchers who passively receive pictures often made by godless people in Hollywood? Meditation. And you learn to speak more visually like that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's 
Amazing how communicative that be. If Martin Luther King had said, I have a dream today, racial reconciliation in America. <laughs> you never would have heard of that speech, right? But instead he said things like, I have a dream today that one day black children and white children will play together in the schoolyards of Georgia. Well, now you can see that dream. And so it's, you know, one of the most famous speeches in American history. And on and on, we could illustrate things like that. How do you learn to speak like that? Well, it's intentional. Several times Jesus said, what is the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed in which you plant in the garden. It grows the biggest tree in the garden, you know, birds of the air nested and so forth. What, what, to what shall I compare it? It's like a woman who, who, who had three measures of yeast, or yeast, she put in three measures of flour and, you know, and so forth. Obviously, he had considered that before. He had, he had sat on a mountainside perhaps and said, now, how can I picture the kingdom of God? They understand an earthly kingdom, but this is a spiritual kingdom. How can I illustrate the kingdom of God? And he came up with these illustrations. And, you know, they're powerfully communicative of what the kingdom of God is like. Well, in the same way. What, you know, especially with, the, with the, the epistles, where you have so much propositional truth. How do we picture that and communicate it to our children in family worship? Or for our own understanding. So, you've got five minutes to read the Bible. You spend five minutes in meditation, absorbing the Bible. And one way to do that is say, what's an illustration of this text? How much time do we have here, Dr. Whitney? I'm sorry? How much time do we have here? What do you, how long do you want to do the question and answer for? Um, it's time on there. Yeah, we can do a few more and then maybe do one less. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, a few more questions. Good morning. Um, morning. You talked about last night uh, that there's three kinds of spiritual thirst, the empty soul, the dry soul, and the satisfied soul. Um, I was thinking of one as um, the broken or soul that's seen trauma in their life. Uh -huh. They cognitively know that they need to thirst for God, but uh, what are some practical ways that they can or, or places they can go to in the Bible to kind of revive, to become that satisfied soul again? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I mean, to pray through the Psalms would be the, the best place to go, I think, in the Bible. It's the only book of the Bible inspired by God for the very purpose of being reflected to God. Uh, Hebrew, the book of Psalms, it means the book of praises. And of course, as you know, that was the songbook of Israel. And twice in the New Testament, we're commanded to sing three things. What are they? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, right? And so um, I, I usually dwell on that and encourage churches, make sure you're consciously doing that. We don't just say, let's sing as the deer. Say, let's sing Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water. Let's, let's don't sing 10,000 reasons. Let's sing Psalm 103, 10,000 reasons to bless the Lord. Because there's a sense in which we can say to people, we're actually obeying God when we sing songs like this. We're not just singing a song that the music guy chose, you know, that he thought would fit the service. Uh, 
um, we're commanded to sing psalms. There's something satisfying in knowing that I'm actually obeying God by singing this particular psalm because it, it is a psalm. So we're to sing in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, comma, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Parallel verse, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, speaking in one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody with your heart to the Lord. We're commanded in two key verses to sing psalms because the psalms were inspired by God to be reflected to God. Only book of the Bible like that. All 66 books equally inspired, but only one has the purpose given to us by God for the purpose of being reflected to God. So back to your question, I think that's the best place in Scripture to kindle the heart, uh, the, the broken heart, as you said. But as far as practical step beyond that, uh, and we were talking about this in, in the car with um, pastor in Kansas City area. Rick Holland um, was in chapel recently, and he put something into expression. It's been very memorable that I had kind of done my own way, but his, his way was better. And to ask yourself, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel? I feel brokenhearted. I feel deserted by God. I feel as though God doesn't care. God is not answering my prayers. I feel alone, abandoned by God. What do you think? I think that's exactly what the circumstances tell me. I think that maybe I brought this on myself and I deserve this abandonment. Why this is, uh, you know, I'm thinking this. But what do you know? The way I put it is, what is the truth? I feel guilty before God. I think that, you know, my sins are too many. They finally exhausted the patience of God. What do I know? What is the truth? The truth is there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. And all day long, my constant need is to reinforce the truth, especially gospel truth. Because my circumstances tell me one thing. My feelings tell me something. And, they, and they're often contrary to the truth. What is the truth? What do I know to be true, though I don't feel it right now? And that practice, I, which I need to do many times every day, brings me back. And my heart often follows that. That I know this is the truth. That God is for me. How do I know that? Because of the cross. Because of all the gifts. God is for me. If God is for me, who's against me? That's the truth. I feel like he's abandoned me. I, my eyes tell me God has abandoned me by the circumstances. But what is the truth? That's walking by faith, I think. And I have to do that every day. I have a question. Uh, yes. What would you say the difference be between memorizing the scriptures and meditating? What's the difference in memorizing and meditating? And also the benefits of meditating. Ah, okay. Well, memorizing is a method of meditation. I mean, memorizing is sort of a discipline by itself in one sense, a sub-discipline of the intake of the Word of God. <clears throat> and we could talk a long time just about memorizing and the value of that. Um, 
fact, if you go to my website again, the most recent blog post is about a pastor, a friend of mine who's memorized 42 books of the Bible and says, you can too. Um, now, he does, and how he does it. Now, he, after he memorizes a book, he reviews it for 100 days, and then he stops. Then he moves to another one. And once he stops, he said he begins to forget. So he can't quote to you 42 books of the Bible. He can only quote the one he's working on. And so that's reassuring. Uh, but, I mean, you, you memorize it, but you're going to in, in, internalize a lot of it. You'll remember a lot of it forever, even though you can't, you know, quote the whole thing as you used to be able to. But so that memorizing is, in a sense, self-contained. It's by itself. But memorizing is also a method of meditation because you can't rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it without thinking about what it says. You can't just very often mindlessly repeat and review it without thinking about it. Second part of it, what are the benefits of meditation? And they're almost endless. I mean, it's part of, part of uh, renewing your mind, as Romans 12, 2 tells us. Uh, but the Bible itself tells us in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So first of all, it gives us the desire and the power to obey. You meditate on it so you'll do it. I mentioned this last night. This is where the fire, this is where the passion comes from. So often we know what to do. We just don't feel like doing it, right? We know what God would have us do. We know what the Bible says. I don't feel like, I, you know, I know I shouldn't say this, but I don't feel like keeping my mouth shut right now. <laughs> well, where, where does the fire, where does the desire, the, 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 the drive to do what it says come from? It's meditation. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, here's the benefit, then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Now, the farther back you go in the Old Testament, the more materialistically they understood that, as they understood so many things. Everything in the temple you know, was tangible, and we know they pointed to spiritual fulfillment later. And the deeper you go in the New Testament, the more we understand uh, the greatest success is Christ-likeness. The greatest prosperity is that where moth and rust does not corrupt, you know, eternal riches in the heavens. But I think, that confusing issue, that even a lost person living by the book of Proverbs is going to be more earthly prosperous than they would have been, and that's key. Prosperity theology is heretical. And yet it is also true that those who live according to the Bible, that tends to human flourishing, not to human degradation and destruction. So that even a lost man, just trying to live by the book of Proverbs, will be more earthly prosperous than he would have been because he's not going to drink all his money away. He's not going to gamble all his money away. He won't be a fool with what he does have. So can you be the godliest person in town and the poorest person in town? Yes. But you won't be as poor as you would have been because you will be a good steward with the little you do have. Is that clear? Clear? In other words, you won't be a fool with what God does give you. You will be a good steward of the little you do have. It may be less than anybody else in town has, but you will be a good steward with it. You won't be wasteful. You won't be foolish. And so you may not be prosperous relative to others, but you'll be more prosperous than you would have been if you were a fool. So, um, again, living according to the Word of God tends to human flourishing, not contrary to human flourishing. 
you live the way God says in the Bible, that, that, if everybody in the world lived according to what the Bible says, the world would be a lot better place, right? And so individually for you, you live according to what the Bible says, your life, that tends toward flourishing, not destruction of your life. So that's one of the great promises. Uh, for then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. Psalm 1, uh, 1 to 3, how blessed is man who has not walked the counsel of wicked and stand in the path of sinners and so forth, sit and seat scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates once a day, right? No, meditates day and night. How, how could, it doesn't say, we think this King David, incredibly busy man, with more responsibility than all of us in this room put together. This man is the civic, judicial, military leader of some two million people. How could he do all of the things God wanted him to do and still do one thing day and night? The only possible way is once during the day he absorbed Scripture in such a way that when he's doing all the other things God wanted him to do, he could meditate on Scripture. He'd be like a tree, he says, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Your life will be fruitful. The fruit of obedience will be there, and your life will count for the sake of the kingdom. That's one of the blessings of meditation. You won't be useless in the kingdom. God uses people who meditate on Scripture because it changes them into Christ's likeness. And its leaf does not wither. You don't burn out spiritually. You don't dry up spiritually. You may live, you may work in a place where there's no spiritual encouragement whatsoever. But the soul, the tree of your soul will thrive because the roots are deep into the water of the Word of God. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. It doesn't say whatever he does, it prospers. What you're doing may not prosper, but your soul will. Whatever he does, he prospers. That's why I said last night some of the greatest promises in the Bible are associated with meditation. And you know why? Because it, it tends to produce obedience. We all know we should be more obedient tomorrow than we are today, right? And Think of it this way. We, we want God's blessing. The promise is in there. We want the blessing of God, right? Whenever we get it, whatever it means, we want it. However much of it is in this world, however much is in the next world, however much of it is, is tangible, however much of it is spiritual, whatever it means, we want it. Whatever those promises mean, we want it. So let's just call it God's blessing. In both of them, and we could look at another one in James, it's preceded by obedience, Right? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. It's after the obedience. And so we all know you want the blessing of God. You can't expect it apart from obedience, right? Our obedience doesn't earn God's blessing. We know sometimes even God blesses us when we're disobedient. But we can't expect the blessing of God without obedience. Well, everybody knows that. What makes us more obedient? Just reading the Bible every day? Well, don't you know people have read the Bible every day for 50 years? They're the same old Henri Cuss they were 50 years ago. The Bible doesn't say reading the Bible makes us more obedient. It says that meditation on Scripture makes us more obedient. And that is what leads to the blessing of God. So answer, what results of meditation? Well, the Bible itself says, leaf does not wither, whatever he does, soul prospers. Uh, there's the fruit of obedience in your life. God blesses and uses people who meditate on Scripture because it results in Christ's likeness. God doesn't bless us in our obedience just saying, okay, good boy, good girl, you did what I said. Here's a blessing. No, obedience is just another term for Christ's likeness. And 
we have been predestined in Christ from the foundation of the world. All those in Christ have been predestined to be like Christ, right? Romans 8, 30 and 31. And, or 29 to 30. And then those who have been chosen, called, justified, are glorified, right? Made like Christ forever and ever. So from eternity past to eternity future, God's plan for his people are that they become like Christ. Well, the more you're becoming like Christ in this life, the more God says, you get it. You understand why I created you. I created you to be like Christ, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like him. So the more we're obeying, the more you're fulfilling God's eternal plan. And God loves to bless conformity to Christ. It brings glory to Christ. So that's why he blesses the obedient. It brings glory to Christ. What makes me more obedient? Meditation. The Bible says it's meditation. Okay, long answer to a short question. Someone else? In the back there. And actually, this is, I was going to talk about in this first session uh, on the, are the Christian spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? And that's exactly what we're doing. So we're, we're, we're doing well. We're on target. So, uh, okay. From there's a, also, there's one in the back I saw. So. From a personal um, point of view, mm -hmm. can you articulate when you began this journey of thirsting to your current thirsting? Uh, maybe give us a picture of what that looks like. Well, I mean, it began at Thursday night when I was nine years old, when I was born again. I was raised in church. I was taken to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, nine months before I was born. Um, I'd heard the gospel, you know, hundreds of times. But there was a Thursday night when I heard God calling me in a way he'd not called me before. Um... Whenever the gospel goes forth, all are sincerely called through the gospel to come to Christ. Theologians refer that as to the general call of the gospel. But there was a special call that night where I heard him calling me as he'd never called me before. As a man is preaching from the Bible and, and showed God is the maker of all things. Therefore, he has all rights over all things and all people, and I was one of them. And so he has the right to tell me how to live because he made me. And he has told me in the Bible, but I've broken his law, countless times, and therefore I was under the, the righteous condemnation of God because there is a judgment, there is a heaven, there is a hell. But in his mercy, as he preached, in his mercy God sent Jesus who lived the life I could not live. And Jesus by his life earned heaven. But that qualified him to be a substitute so that lawbreakers like me could know God. And so Jesus willingly offered himself on the cross. God accepted that sacrifice we know on the behalf of others because God raised him from the dead. He ascended Jesus to heaven, to the right hand of God, from which someday he will return and be king and judge over all. What I need to do is to repent, to turn from my sin and turn from living for myself and put my faith in Christ alone to make me right with God. And though I'd heard this message countless times that night, Receive what Jonathan Edwards called the divine and supernatural light, where, as Paul said, the God who spoke in the darkness spoke into my heart and, and gave me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's just like when God said, Let there be light, that's what he did in the darkness of my soul. And I, I had suddenly the, the knowledge. 
in the face of Jesus Christ, in that man, is the glory of God. That's God. So all he says is true, and all he did illustrates that he is God, and I need to follow him. And that means turning from my path and turning to his path. So that's, that's when it began. And in Pilgrim's Progress, after he is born again. If you've ever read that, by the way, a problem people have is, Bunyan, there's so many things to talk about regarding salvation. He has to sort of telescope salvation. And so he goes through the wicked gate, the narrow way, and that's really when he's born again. But it's not till sometime afterwards that he comes to the cross and the burden rolls off his back. He just, there's just too many things to say about salvation to put in one single picture. So he sort of telescopes it. But in that process, Christian is taken to the interpreter's house, which refers to the Holy Spirit. And he sees six different things there. And one of them is, he takes, the interpreter takes a Christian into a room, and Satan is throwing water on a fire. And he's so frustrated because he can't put the fire out. And he, Christian is taken to the other room on the other side, and the Holy Spirit, or, and there's a man referring to the Holy Spirit, keeps throwing oil on the fire from that side. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he has done that in my life, using the means of the Word of God privately, publicly. Uh, just the, the ordinary means of grace. You know, the Lord's table, the ministry of the church. And I just give all glory to him because, again, if I could have lost my salvation, I would have. So I, I the Bible tells us to sow so to the Spirit. And so you, you put yourself in, in God's path. I mean, where, where does God walk? Well, basically, it's the spiritual disciplines, the personal spiritual disciplines, the congregational spiritual disciplines. So you, you want to cultivate more of a, of a hunger for God and thirst for God. That's going to happen by encountering Him. See him and say, I want more of that. How do I do that? How? It's by means of the spiritual disciplines. So God has ordained certain paths or highways he goes down regularly. Meditation on Scripture is one. The Coming to the church where the Word of God is preached and the ordinances are served and, and God's worship is enjoyed. The Bible says God ordained that. We can expect to meet Him there if we pull ourselves into His path. That's what Zacchaeus did, didn't it? Zacchaeus said he wanted to encounter Jesus. How can I do that? Well, he knew the path Jesus would take. So he got in his way. He got in that path, climbed up on a sycamore tree. Jesus came through there and changed Zacchaeus. So we ask ourselves, where will Jesus? where will we find Jesus walking? Well, he's made that clear. He has ordained certain paths, and he walks down those paths. And our job is to pull ourselves onto those paths. That's practicing the spiritual disciplines. Classic example of that is the Sunday morning when it's like this morning. It's gray. It's rainy. You don't feel like getting up. Your first thought is, I don't feel like going today. But you get up. You discipline yourself to get up, get ready, and show up. You know what you did? You took hold of yourself to go against your feelings. I feel like staying home. I think I want to stay home, but I know I should be there. You take hold of yourself, and you got here. Preach it. That was Preach it. 
you practice the spiritual discipline. And that's what you do every Sunday morning when you don't feel like coming. But by faith, you discipline yourself to go against what your flesh wants to do. And you come by faith with right motivation. You can expect to meet God here. I mean, how many Sunday mornings have you said, you woke up, I don't feel like going today. But you do. And afterwards you say, I am so glad I didn't stay home today. You came and you experienced God. Why? Because you pulled yourself into the path where He typically shows up. And then you leave. Back to your question now. Your thirst for God is greater. Our thirst for God is increased by God. By experiencing God. What are the means of experiencing God? The biblical spiritual disciplines. Not just automatically. I mean, the old line, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, works for us too as Christians. The worship leaders of your church can lay the banquet of God for you. The Word of God preached, the Word of God served, the Word of God sung, the Word of God prayed. But you have to focus. You can't just come with your arms folded and say, okay, bless me, you know, bless me. But if someone comes with a heart hungry for God to a church where the banquet of God is set, you're going to meet God and great things are going to happen. You're going to be blessed. Okay. Yes. All right. Got another question. Is, back is that satisfactory? Okay. Yes, in the back. So I'm a mom to two young kids, and my husband leaves for work early. I was just wondering, how can I think through the day? Like, once, once my day starts, it starts. I don't think I catch a break. So how can I, me- like, meditate on what I read in the morning? How can I think about it throughout the day without getting, you know, succumbing to the mundane? Yeah. Well, as I said last night, first of all, you should be able to just say at some moments, you know, what was that verse? If you can't remember, that tells you, okay, today you did not sufficiently meditate. That's not to condemn you. That's just a, you know, just a daily checkpoint that lets you know, okay, I didn't sufficiently meditate. And when can you do this kind of thing? Uh, just certain things may be you begin to, as the Puritans would have said, you improve it. They would often say, I'm going to try to improve the situation. Maybe we would call it our commute. If they were walking to the fields, if that was their commute, they would say, how can I improve this? And they might say, I would intentionally try to think on Scripture as I walk. So there may be several routines in your day that you can say, how can I improve this? Or certain markers. When I lived in Kansas City, there was, on my commute to the seminary, there's a certain hill I would crest on the interstate, and suddenly there's this panoramic view of the city. Just striking. You just can't miss it. And I use that as a prompt every day to pray for revival in Kansas City. There were certain billboards, certain just markers on my path and in my day that I designated them as prompts for things to think about. And so that, that's true for all of us. And if I may be so earthy and practical, I mean, even when you go to the bathroom. I mean, God has made us where we all do that. And you spend perhaps years of your life, if you add it all up, <laughs> doing that. you got to think about something. So just make some of those times, you know, okay, I'm gonna, that's when I'm going to ask myself. 
I have a busy day, like you said. I, you know, I don't have time to stop once my day gets started. But you will go to the bathroom. Or you will get a cup of coffee or something like that. Let those be prompts to think about the things of God. And if you'll do that throughout the day, you'll find that those thoughts linger. I mean, that's what works for me. Just, I mean, it's very practical. It's very mundane, but that, that works for me. In our current age, you might use, you know, you know, remind me at 10.05 to think on Scripture. <laughs> and Siri does the work. Uh, so use those things to our advantage. I, I have an app. It's been the simplest on my phone. And it's just personal accountability for a half a dozen things that are not easy for me to remember. They're, they're not a part of my character, but I want them to be. And that, it's going to be, that's, those are long-term changes before they become just natural, and I don't need reminders anymore. So once every day, usually at the very end of the day, and sometimes I forget, and I have to end up doing it for two days in a row. I just, it's just, I just touch. Calendar comes up for this one. I touch it. The next calendar comes up for this particular thing I want to do. I touch it. That's not legalism. I don't have to do these things. I want to do those things. I don't have an accountability partner on those things. It's self-accountability. And so it's my daily reminder to myself to do things I want to do. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Because I'll forget to do them if I don't have some artificial reminder. And so I use technology to help me remember to do some spiritual things I want to do.